This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? I think I'm ready. All right. Well, this is the Full Blast Podcast, and I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with my friend, Chris Sepieri of Make Everything Shop, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Axwax. Axwax is an all-natural, food-safe wax for your axe or your hammer or your knives. If you're a knife maker like me and you make culinary knives, it's nice to be able to offer an all-natural product without any petroleum byproducts to give to your customers. You can put it on your boots. You can put it on your jacket. And I got guys who are putting it in their hair, believe it or not. And if you go to axwax.us, you put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you can get 10% off. Get yourself a couple pucks of Axe Wax, and um, thanks to you, the listener, the bandsaw has arrived, and I have to thank my guest, Chris Zeppieri, for making sure I made the right decision. If you don't know, Chris Zepp of Make Everything Shop is one of the smartest young men I've gotten to know. He knows a little bit too much about everything, but I love it. He's, uh, I mean, where do you start? He is a, he has an armada of ways to deliver his message to you. He's, <laughs> uh, if you go to Instagram, you follow him on Maker, uh, Make Everything Shop. If you go to YouTube, he's got an awesome YouTube channel, Make Everything Shop. You can listen to his podcast here on the Makery Network, hand, the Handmade Podcast with uh, with uh, Paul Pinto and Derek from Malden. And he's also a great, he's on, he, this is like the victory lap grand champion of all Assembly Required. Assembly Required. How are you, Chris? Man, that was some introduction. I'm doing good, man. I'm doing uh, very good. You're one of, I, I, I was very fortunate enough to meet you uh, back when we were doing uh, Maker Fair. Some Maker, was it Maker Fair? Was Maker that? Fair, yep. Maker Fair. You're, you are, it's hard for me to, it's hard for anyone not to root for you. Number one is because you always have to root for guys from Long Island. I have made <laughs> it my goal, my goal, I always root from, from, for guys from Long Island. And I can lit, list off the broadcasters who have come out of Long Island. This is this is a strange situation. If you Howard Stern, Opie and Anthony, Sean Hannity, uh, Brian, uh, Bill, uh, Bill O'Reilly, whether you like him or not, all those broadcasters, some of the best broadcasters in the biz, all came from Long Island. And then I am a UFC fighter. I'm a UFC fan. I always root for a guy living near you, Chris Weidman, who lives. I think he's in. Baldwin or something like that, Long Island. So it's hard for me not to root for Long Island guys. You know, it's funny. There's a there's a there's a a lot of people come out of this place. You know, some better than others, but it's um it's such a weird location too because if you know it, you know it. But if you don't, it's like it might as well be like you know Guam. You know, when you meet people <laughs> from like especially from like the West. You know, like Ben Snur. I assume he has no idea where Long Island is. Right. You know, it's like so far into him. But then again, it's so populous and there's so many different like cultures and upbringings here. It's a, it's an interesting place. Jimmy DeResta, you know, that's a Long Island man right there. Is he from Long Island? Yeah, I thought Jimmy. He was from, for, yeah. for some reason, I thought he was from the Lower East Side. No, no. He actually, funny enough, he's, uh, let's see, Jimmy's like 20 years older than me and grew up probably like four miles from the town that I originally was from on the South Shore, Long Island. 
So he's from like Woodmere, Hewlett area, and I grew up on East Rockaway on the South Shore. So people that uh, my family knows from that area still knew Jimmy's parents. Like Jimmy's dad was a handyman and stuff. So it's like this weird, you know, pool of people that, you know, you wind up and find later in life. So you grew up in the Rockaways. Sort of. East Rockaway is like a little bit, it's it's a lot more like kind of Nassau than it is Queens. You know, it's like more okay. Limbrook area. Um, for those of you that are familiar with it, but, um, none of them, none yeah, of them yeah, nobody, none of them um, nobody, um, but nobody. yeah, I lived down on the South shore until I was like 11 and then we moved up to the North shore where we're at now to this tiny little one square mile town on the beach. That's, uh, a lot more of kind of like an artist, you know, a, a lot more of a creative space. A lot of like artists and musicians live up here. Um, a lot more liberal art kind of high school up here as well, which was turned out to be really good. I mean, that's not why we moved here, but you know, worked out for me. It did work out for you. And you I tell you what, I enjoy, I've always enjoyed watching everything that you do because you have this zest for life. And, and the first thing I want to talk to you, talk about is you just recently were on the show, uh, assembly required. And I have a lot of thoughts about it because it is, so this is now we're in the beginnings of the end of March I guess in September, you got a call from September or I guess early in the summer, in the late in the summer, you got a call from this production company, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it had actually been in the works for a while. And, um, but you know, like I've, I've been in talks with a million different production companies on different shows. And like the first one that ever called me was probably like three years ago and it was like so exciting. And, you know, I like took everything they said a hundred percent seriously and, you know, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then it vanished into thin air. And I felt it was like really upsetting, you know, yeah. like and disappointing. And then after that, I learned that like nothing is done until they're literally at your door with the camera. And even then it's not done until it's on TV. So this one I had a totally like nonchalant, like, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I'll do it whenever. And then, yeah, they, they started talking about it probably even like December of 20, I guess, December of 2020, even before then. And then we shot 20, it. 2019. I'm sorry. Yeah. December of 2019. Yeah. Um, and then we shot it in October of uh, 2020. So the the idea of the show, it's a History Channel show and it stars Tim Allen and Richard Karn. And they're in the, if you're not from the United States in the 90s, there had there was this sitcom TV show called Home Improvement. And it was this, you know this you know laugh tracks and 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 it was like you know the whole idea was it was based on this this guy tim allen who had this tv show called tool time and he and richard karn did like a uh like a maker like a maker tv show it was mm -hmm. like uh who was the bob vila it was based off of bob vila and it was like you know canned humor nothing special but they were monsters it was a monster tv show so if you don't know, Tim Allen also is the voice of Buzz Lightyear, and you would have thought from uh, what's the what's the name of the uh, Toy, Toy Story. Story? Yep, you would have thought that he had made enough money, but <laughs> clearly <laughs> you would have thought that you would have thought that. And then, so I just did a little research, and they came there, the executive producer. So Tim Allen is is the executive producer of the show, and it's similar to Forge and Fire. You have three contestants, and you have to make something. And then you're pitted against each other, and then there's a you know elimination round, and then you have a, the finals. Yeah. What was interesting about this show is, 
And I'm in, I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that they were t- they were contacting you in la- in December of 19 of December uh 2019 because they had to film it after the coronavirus started, COVID, the yep. COVID pandemic. So it must have changed the entire uh idea of how they were going to make this show. Yeah, I couldn't believe when they called me. So I had one of the guys um number saved in my phone cuz he would text me one of the executive producers. Um and like I would say like uh I guess the summer, right, of last year, he calls me and he's like, "Hey man, how are you?" You know, like they're they're all so excited. They're all like, you know, it's like I imagine they're like super miserable. And they have this like like terrible day, and then they when they call these people that they're trying to get on a show, they just immediately flip 180 degrees, and they oh hey man how's everything going? You know everything's great. Um, and I was like, are we are you guys actually thinking of doing that this show this year? I'm like, it's a contest show. How are you going to do that? He's like, well, here's the twist. We're going to film it in your shop. And I was like, that's great. You know, I mean, what better place to what better place for me to make something that's totally out of the blue and um you know in a contest format than in my own space where you you know you know where everything is and you have all this stuff so um you know i don't know when they made that decision but i think it worked out good for me i was i was ready to do it in a studio just like they do forged and fire but it was definitely nice to be in my place you know you have the upper hand because not only in regards to what you have but you know everything is exactly yeah and, I give them and, a- um what i was saying was and just like the the amount that i've invested into just the infrastructure of my shop you know and anybody that kind of knows my stuff like i'm a tool guy so like i've got all the tools you know i'm ready yeah. to, ready to go i think that i think it i get at first when i watched the show because i'm going to link the show in the show notes uh, history channel was smart and they they made it available for people to watch the day after the filming I give them a lot of credit for going through with this because at the time, especially in the summertime, it this was, especially in New York, mm-hmm. it was the height. It was the it was the it was the the pinnacle of the first wave of coronavirus uh, infections, and for them to just be like, "All right, we're going to make a we we're going to just turn it around and then have people filming in their own shops" is such a brave move because like now all of a sudden you have some content, new content that's going to come out relatively early yeah i mean it's it it was definitely um it was it was definitely something that i was waiting for them to call me and tell me that they weren't doing it right you know and especially in new york like i had a feeling that it would be like all right you know we're gonna do it but you know just to keep our exposure down we're gonna limit it but um you know and it was shot with just one one shooter one uh one filmer so they weren't sending a whole crew and, you know, they, they made sure to like, let me know that the, the, the filmer had been COVID vaccinated and he was really uh, not vaccinated. That was, this Tested. is pre-vaccination. Right. Um, he, he had been tested. He made sure like to wear the mask the whole time. Um, and he was like relatively local to here. So, I mean, it wound up, you know, I felt pretty safe doing it, but yeah, I was, I was pretty surprised. And then I know even, even just seeing the behind the scenes stuff of them filming it out in California in the studio, cause it was somewhat live between here and there. Right. So in the show, you see me and the other contestants interacting with Tim and Richard, uh, through like video chat and like right. that really happened. So I had like a laptop set up on my workbench and I could see them and I had an earpiece in. And so like, 
but you could see in the background that, you know, there was probably 50 production people. Everyone is, you know, social distancing and, and wearing their masks and stuff. Cause you know, yeah, you're right. When they did this in October, things were still pretty, things were still pretty heavy all everywhere, especially in New York. Oh, terrible. I, I, I so, but the, 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 you know, this is so much, this is interesting different than forge and fire to me because you know we know a lot of forge and fire guys i mean a knife talking mean, we talked to you know we, you can't swing a cat without hitting a forge and fire contestant has been you know talks to us on the show <laughs> the fact that you were able to kind of like i feel like a couple things one is because you were in your own shop which isn't a great shop you have one of the great shops uh, I, I can't what you've stuffed into that shop in long island is always amazing but <laughs> the fact that you were to showcase you were able to showcase your shop it helped you in general because the funny thing is with Forge and Fire is they don't let you have it. I mean, if my, my friends who've been on Forge and Fire, if they do the final, they, they're putting black tape on everything. Mm -hmm. There are no distinguishing characteristics to your shop because they don't want to do any free ads. But it totally highlighted your shop to the point where, you know, you're going against two guys. One guy's in a two car garage, another guy's in his in his in his like driveway with his a pop up tent. With, yeah, with a pop up tent. And well, we're going to get into that. But the fact is, is the the fact that you were able to not only um, showcase your shop, which is in line with how you showcase your shop on everything else, you know, on all your other things, mm -hmm. you were this. I get worried for people who do these shows because I feel like, what's the benefit to you? Mm -hmm. Like with Forge and Fire, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people who go onto it think that they're going to become famous, yeah, and they're not they're not really using their heads. The fact that you had that experience uh, for the past, you know, f number of years, you know, knowing to be disappointed because they weren't, wouldn't show and stuff like that. And because you were a little bit more blase about it, not blase, but like relaxed, I think you had an edge with it in regards to that. But because you were able to kind of like highlight you and your show and the, and your shop, the way you already do on your YouTube channels and your Instagram, I really thought you benefited from that. I absolutely did. I mean, it, you know, and I didn't know what they were going to show and what they weren't going to show in terms of like, you know, the the same way that I show kind of everything on my social media. But, um, you know, I was I was pretty shocked when the episode came out and it wasn't just like one big blur of like right. brands and and tools. Um, if anything, it was, you know, it really kind of highlight highlight a lot of the stuff that I use a lot. And obviously there was so much work that I put into that project that wasn't shown of course you know he's like five days of work um that you know they condense into like five minutes but yeah no it was it i was very happy with the way i think i was and my rep and my shop was re represented on the show and um i you know and but I, I will say like as as carefree as i was about whether or not the show happened once i was on it i definitely felt like i had a lot to lose if i didn't perform well because really? i felt like you know and and i'm it probably doesn't come off so much in the social media and stuff because you know it's just me doing my thing but like i like to win you know like i'm a competitive person and i want to do well and i i learn all these skills so i can be good at the stuff that i do and if i'm bad at something i work extra hard to be better at it because it's just i want to be good at at whatever I'm going to attack. So like the thought of potentially losing, um, this where it's like right in my wheelhouse, you know, it's like 
take all these things that were going to show up in a crate and figure out a way to make them work and do a good job and work fast under pressure. Like, I feel like that is exactly who I am and what I'm good at. So if I were to not do it well, I feel like it would have been, it would have been really, I would have been hard. I would have been a hard pill to swallow. Really? Um, Yeah. And you know, the other thing too is like, um, and, and they only really talked about this in the first episode of the show, but we had absolutely no idea what the other competitor was making. We didn't get to see them. I didn't know the guys. I didn't even know the guy's name. So hmm. I didn't know that he was working in like his driveway on the floor, like running his little table saw, you know, um, working outside until the episode aired, you know? So like, um, on like a forged and fire type show, right? Like these guys all work together in the forge the first like couple days and then they go back to their home shops. Um, but you get a sense of your competition. I would think, you know, like, you know, if the guy you're going up against is like, you know, really, really good or maybe not so good. So, and I think that that might maybe change the way that you would work, right? Like if you think the guy you're going up against is incredible and you're like a more amateur Smith, you're going to kill yourself to try to beat that guy. Um, but going into it completely blind, I was just like, I have to do the absolute best thing that I possibly could do. Assuming that this other dude, like, you know, like works for Elon Musk and like puts rockets on the moon, you know? (laughs) Um, so, you know, and I, and I, I wanted it, I wanted to win because I wanted it for like, not so much the bragging rights, because like what bragging rights am I going to get? But just for my own personal thought of like, all right, I had this challenge and I, I, I got through it, you know? One thing that is actually kind of interesting, my kid is on the swim team and the, in order for them to do meets, they're doing virtual meets. And what they're doing is they're actually, the, their team is swimming in their pool and then there are only two lanes going, and then their opponents are swimming in their pool. Huh. And they're doing it based on time. They can't see their opponents. They're not, you know, with swimming, it's one of those things where, like, I, you know, you, if, you, if you're looking down the lane who you're swimming against while you're swimming, that's usually bad. So, but, mm. so I was talking to my kid, and I was just saying, I was like, you must feel more relieved that you're, that you're just trying to swim your best game and you don't see that person next to you. And she goes, no. I fucking want to see the person next to me because I want to know how I'm doing. And I also want to, you know, I want to get fired up and I need that Mm -hmm. competition because it's very similar to what you were doing. So in the sense of like, I would think because you can't see that one guy was like a steampunk guy and the other guy was, it was a set, I guess he was like a set carpenter. Yeah, like a Uh, set rigger. Because you can't see who your competition is, that feeling of like, I'm, I'm, I maybe, you know, that's 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 fascinating. I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you, how you would your game would change based off of how you see your your opponents. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I can't say that, and and I think it worked definitely to to my benefit, right? Because like, let's say I could see like a like a like a stream of the other guy working in his driveway. Oh, you're you know, gonna, like you're going to hot dog it. You're going to like be like, I can I can tone it down a little bit. Exactly, a hundred percent. Like it's like okay, well, I don't need to like. Like there's, I, I, one of the things that isn't shown in the episode is like, I wanted this thing to feel like it was built in a factory, like not like cobbled together in my shop. Right. So like the, the controls for the mower have like a little hour count and they have a little switch and a key and a couple things. And they're right in the arm of the mower so that when you're sitting in the mower chair, normally you can reach down and grab them. So 
I spent like a half a day cutting. There was 42 wires. I cut every single wire and I added four feet to it. And I moved that whole panel up to the arm of the chair. And I put it in a stained wooden box and reupholstered it into the arm of the lounge chair. Just so that when they sat in it, they would look down and the key would be right there. And it would literally be like integrated into that stupid lounge chair. And like, had I seen what this guy was doing, not to say that he didn't do a good job, but just to see like the level of work or the level of capability that he might have had. I don't think I would have done that. Hmm. You know, like maybe I would have just been like, eh, like, I don't need to do that. That's a lot of work because his key and all that stuff was just buried under the chair. So somebody actually had to go down and like reach underneath it and try to find the key to start the mower. I was I wasn't going to do that. I wanted it to be like perfect, you know, so. For, so the so the so the so every all three contestants are in their home shops. They're introduced, and there's a huge crate. And in the crate is a uh, Barca lounger chair, or like a you know lazy boy chair. The ugliest chair that's ever been produced. It was bad. I was a little bit disappointed how bad the chair was. And then riding motors, but not. It was the what, what are those kinds of motors? Zero called? zero turn. Right. So it's like you're sitting and then you have to, instead of a steering wheel, you have two arms that go left and right and then you can kind of swing around. They're, it's like a pro thing. And then they gave you, did they give you like weed whackers and stuff? Yeah, they gave us the weed whacker and they gave us the uh, hedge trimmer, um, which were just like some battery powered thing. And then there was like a couple other parts and pieces in there. But obviously, you know, we were able to uh, we were able to use whatever we wanted. You know, there was no limitation as to what we could use. Um so that's when like I put the flamethrower on it and I put the winch and the lights and, you know, like try to bring it up to the next level so that it would be, you know, super functional and like cool. The flamethrower was just like for for shock, you know, the, the flamethrower was the, the the one thing is, is they could in the in the show and spoiler alert, they didn't flight the flamethrower, which no. which was like, you know, pussy time. But fine, I, I completely you know, whatever. What it, so the, the 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 idea behind Tool Time, it seems, the the old TV show was that that he does everything is got to be like, you know, ultra masculine mm-hmm. and ultra like crazy and stuff like that. So the idea was to make the most comfortable lawnmower possible, and then the you know, the the first the first way to uh, get rid of uh, the I, the first elimination round was to make a kind of like a stabilizer so they could put your drink on the on the tape on the table mm-hmm. and then and then it wouldn't it would it would stabilize when you, it would hop up and down while you put it down right yeah it was supposed to be shock absorbing but you know i don't know that that first uh challenge was a little tricky and the way it it showed on tv was not so great but you know it's funny because you know you talk about forge and fire right like and um, I know a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, watch it. And I, one of the things that I've always noticed about Fortune Fire is in that first round, there's almost always one person that doesn't finish. Right. And even if the person next to him does like an absolutely horrible job, as long as they finish, they keep going, you know, and like you can always kind of like recover if you get to the next stage. So literally in that first round, my in my head, I was like, I just need to make something because right. there is a good chance that one of these guys just isn't going to finish. And that's exactly what happened, which I thought was kind of interesting because like, you know, whatever, Tim, Tim Allen kind of like, you know, trash talks my stupid food tray in the episode. And um, I, you know, whatever it is, what it is. But at least I finished. 
one of the things that's very clear as well is Tim Allen doesn't know anything about it. I mean, I think that if you were to give him, I mean, no offense, Tim, you can't listen to this. If you were to give him like a quarter 20 tap and ask him what it's for, I don't know. I don't think he could tell you what it's for. I don't think he knows really. He, he makes it seem like he's aware. It's just very clear that he, he wouldn't know a screwdriver from a wrench. I, yeah. I, I, I'm convinced. But so, one of the things that was interesting was, oh, sorry, was you, were you going to say something? I was going to say somebody messaged me after it was over and said they should have just filmed Tim and Richard trying to reassemble everybody's uh, projects themselves when they got there. Because like it would have been like, no way they would have been able to do it. There you know? should be like a trivia que- a trivia test <laughs> at the end with them and like, how much do you really know? Because the, the funny thing is, is like, like I said, Tim Allen, you think he's got enough money. You know, I don't know why he's doing this, but obviously I, I appreciate the fact that they did something in the in the time of COVID that was like approachable for people. I think that if it was the original intention, things might have been different. But one of the things that interests me the most is I feel like, well, number one, everybody in the maker community was rooting for you. You know, you know that, right? I mean, I, I got that. people. I really did, and I really appreciate everyone that like was rooting for me on that that i really 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 felt that throughout this whole thing we wanted you to whip their whip these guys asses which you did i mean the 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 first guy no offense but i mean he couldn't even work it the one thing is he's trying to get the trying to get he couldn't put a a screw into the side of the chair and then (laughs) he said something along the lines of well this doesn't meet my expect this doesn't meet my my uh my abilities. This doesn't meet my uh, standards, is yeah, what he said. Yeah. I'm just like, bro, dude, <laughs> this is you're living in a dream world. He, he, it was, it was. So he got eliminated because he just didn't finish, which I felt mm-hmm. bad about. But at the same time, it's just like. But the best part was is the next thing, which I would have, I would have, if I had, I, I personally believe I could have, at least not been kicked off. If there were four, if there was a fourth guy, and if I was the fourth guy. <laughs> I would have been just in front of the steampunk guy. I feel comfortable that I could have screwed something into the thing. Mm-hmm. So the thing to me that I would have totally lost was when you when you're getting to the next round, they like sabotaged the mowers so they wouldn't work. Yeah. So, um, funny enough, I've never driven a zero turn mower in my life so getting that thing to start was like as soon as i saw it i was like shit i have to figure out how to like drive this and and use it because it's got to work and i say it in the episode because like i used to work on motorcycles and like mopeds and stuff a lot and you'd buy these like i'd buy like an old motorcycle right and i'd have all these cool ideas on how i was going to make it into this like showpiece but if the thing doesn't actually start like what a waste of time it is to like make it look beautiful you know it's like building like a trophy car but then you have to like push it you know so like i really did genuinely have the thought of all right i need to make sure this thing works and drives and runs and i work on little small engines and stuff all the time so when it didn't start i just kept you know i just went through my normal sort of process of trying to figure it out you know um but i did that within the first like hour of getting it out of the crate because I wasn't going to spend four days, five days working on the damn thing and then have it not start. You know, it would have been like just devastating. I, that, that I would have, I would have never been, I would have, I would have turned to the camera guy and say, you got to do something about this. I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I, <laughs> I, I, this I'm out. I mean, there's nothing I can do. It doesn't work. I mean, I don't know what to say. I, that was a very, you got major street cred on that thing. And, and the other guy did too. And really what it came down to was, 
you were you were you kind of outmatched him in terms of your your experience and your equipment and you know look you did a great job and you I mean it's no surprise you won and everyone was cheering for you I I found that I feel like and this is something that you touched upon on your own podcast you were you outmatched him your shop outmatched him you know I mean you the, how happy was Lincoln when they did a big pan over that plasma <laughs> table did you get any calls about that Funny enough, I got an email from uh, my friend, uh, you know, one of the marketing people at Lincoln. The show ended at 10. I think he emailed me at like 10.08 and said like, hey, Chris, congratulations. We were all rooting for you. Like really happy to see the Lincoln equipment, you know, worked out for you on this project. You know, we knew you had it. Um, That was totally like, and I don't, truly, I don't know whether or not Lincoln has some sort of a pre-negotiated deal with History Channel because I can't believe they let all those logos fly on national TV like that. You know, I mean, it's great for me and it's great for Lincoln. And I am, I have been working with Lincoln for two years. They have been incredibly supportive. They, you know, I appreciate them and they've done more for me than I can ever even like fully explain. So I'm, I'm happy for it, but I just, it, it seems crazy to me that they showed all those logos and they didn't blur all of them out. But <laughs> you know? it doesn't, it doesn't seem crazy because I mean, you're under different circumstances with the, with, yeah. the, with the way, I mean, if they're sending one dude, he's mm-hmm. not going to be running around with masking tape trying to figure out what to do, you know, and they probably yeah. didn't have the, they probably didn't have the budget to blur every single thing out. You know, it's like, at some point, it's just like I mean, their History Channel was giving giving the episodes away after it aired. So it's like, I think that it was it was a much smarter move, oh, and yeah. obviously for you it was much better. And I, I'm I I to me I felt like because of the pandemic they were able to just be like, all right, let's just cut the shit because Forge and Fire is they're notorious for not helping out any of the contestants at all. I mean, mm-hmm. at all. Like, there's nothing. There's, I mean, you know, this is John from the Northern Hemisphere. You know, it's yep. like, you can't, I mean, there's, they don't help you, they don't help their contestants out at all. And, but, but you specifically, like, I, when I talk to Forge and Fire guys, like I say to them, I'm like, this can't be, you can't hang your hat on being on this show. Mm-hmm. You have to be, you have to be, it has to be an arrow in your quiver and just being like, you had a good time. You didn't have a good time. Yep. I know guys who, who say it was a great experience and some are like, I'm humiliated. I'm humiliated for the rest of my life. My, And it's like, I, I found for you, it, like I said, it's an arrow in the quiver of who you are. And I, I was really happy for you. One of the things that I felt like was these TV shows are so... They're so more, they're TV oriented instead of the idea oriented. Like, and it's very clear, and you've said this on the Handmade Podcast, and definitely everyone listened to the Handmade Podcast. You said you were completely outmatched. I mean, you outmatched all these guys. And it was a lot of it was because of the, sh- the shop that you have. I mean, you spent years of your life and your, all your money and all your time learning how to use all these incredible lathes and, and milling machines and welders and plasma tables. And you're very, very well versed in all this stuff. And it was very clear that you just had a, you had the right mind to do it. It almost makes me feel like these shows need a project manager like you to be <laughs> able to look at these people and say, all right, don't put this guy ne- against this guy. This guy going to win the whole thing. 
You know, it isn't like in Forge and Fire, here's a good example of what they were looking for in Forge and Fire. I think it was the first season when they had Neil Camamore on our friend. Neil had only been forging for three months. And wow. he won again he won up against all these guys and he whipped he he won. I wasn't gonna say he whipped their asses, I'm not gonna say that. I did, but it's fine. Um but I think that they were possibly looking for an underdog victory, but it was like they need a I feel like a guy like you could be the project manager for these shows to say, okay, look, this guy doesn't, this that he doesn't even, they could not even, the steampunk guy doesn't even know how to use a screwdriver. <laughs> poor guy, poor guy, that poor guy. Well, it's funny too because I I had actually like, you know, obviously I had a lot of time to think about what it was going to be like to be on the show, and I and I think I talked about this um, maybe on my Instagram or on the other podcast, but like I I had a thought. Like, and, and you know, Tyler Bell, right? Sure. I love Tyler. Friend of the show. Yeah. Fantastic. Incredibly creative. Very, very talented. But he has a very small kind of humble shop, right? So I kept thinking like, all right, well, that would be like, an, that would be a perfect matchup, right? You put me versus Tyler. We have, I think we have similar working minds. Tyler's probably a little more engineering, uh, a, a little more engineering kind of mindset than I am. And he's a little more a little more calculated where I kind of run a little fast and loose, but that would have been a great kind of David and Goliath matchup from a shop perspective where right. like you could have had me with all this crazy shit and Tyler with the Porta band and like the Ryobi grinder. And in that case, like I think Tyler would have put out something really great in this really small shop. And it would have been hard not to look at that as a factor as to who was the winner, you know? And right. I had this feeling of like, like, you know, they might be taking this, this background that I have and this, this tooled up equipment, you know, base that I have, and then put me against someone that is like maybe just starting out working in their garage. And then that would be a disadvantage to me if their thing is as good as mine or close. And they go, well, look at what this guy made in his, you know, tent in the driveway. Right. And you got this kid with, you know, the, the, the $25,000 plasma table couldn't even come up with anything, you know, worth looking at. I had that thought because TV is about those like kind of gotcha moments, you know, right. it's like, you know, that's why like Forged and Fire will put an ABS Master Smith against 21 year old Paul Pinto, you know, and Paul's working out of his parents garage and absolutely crushes it, you know, because he can, you know, taught himself and learned on his own. And obviously his work spoke for itself in that thing. But that is that matchup that you kind of look for. I, but I think in the case of the episode I was on, I think they totally whiffed the, uh, the competitors. And to speak even further into it, I know a couple other people that were on the show that have shops that are very similar to mine. And those would have been, I think, a little bit better of a matchup. And I don't see why they didn't select the pool a little bit more balanced but like i said these are tv shows looking to just they have time and deadlines mm -hmm. and stuff like that they're not as worried about the content you know they're hoping that you know tim allen says something funny and you know <laughs> it, 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 it just seems like i know you you get the feeling like there's so much deadline involved with all these shows that they can't think of for everything i mean obviously oh, maybe yeah. it'll maybe you know if there is a second season maybe there'll be uh something yeah, honestly I'm just happy that you 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 know I'm happy that you 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 had such a big uh, support system and you you came through for them because you would have gotten your balls broken if the if the, <laughs> if, if, if if the steampunk guy won it would have been yeah 
Well, been... the Eric from Hand Tool Rescue commented on my Instagram when I first posted like about it. He wrote, "You know if you he wrote, you know if you lose, you have to change your name, right?" <laughs> and I read it and I thought like, well, you know, it's a good thing I did all right. And it, it's funny too because you were talking about how the episode is free. Um, one of the things, you know, and I'm looking at this whole thing as like basically a big marketing exercise for my brand, right? right? I want, I, I did this so that it would help kind of push what I'm, I'm trying to do on my own. And it, History Channel let the first four episodes be completely free for anybody that wants to watch them. And now the fifth episode on, you have to be like, you know, signed in and signed up. And I think that's like a huge mistake. A huge because mistake. Because this is a first season of a brand new show that maybe people aren't even going to want to watch. And I think I feel fortunate that my episode is available for me to send to people and let anyone watch it. It's good for me. And I would feel a little upset if I was in like episode six and I had to like tell people, Oh yeah, I'd love for you to watch my episode, but you know, you have to have Comcast or whatever. You know, I think that's, that's a, I think that's a misstep. Well, it's it's a huge mistake. You know, I was talking to Craig Lockwood on knife talk about it and he was pissed because he can't watch it because Mm -hmm. it's because he's in France that they won't allow him to watch it, which is another big mistake. These, these companies are going to have to figure out a way that there's some sort of global, you know, system because it's like, why fucking around? I mean, it's like, it's so stupid. One of the things that, you know, it's interesting to me because I don't have. I have a similar background to that as that you do, in the sense that I've worked in metal shops, and I have been an install guy and and a, and a, and um, you know working in shops, fabrication shops, and stuff like that. I'm constantly fascinated by talking to young knife makers or people who are starting hobbyists or hobbyist DIYers and stuff like that. And when they look at the stuff that you've done, and they don't realize that you have a background in construction. One of the things that I'm fascinated with, like here's a perfect example. I never saw a portable bandsaw, a portaband, a Milwaukee portable, whatever, doesn't matter the company. I never saw one of those before until I was an installer where mm-hmm. we were using them to cut posts for railings. And now they're synonymous with shops, especially with knife makers. Yeah. Most knife makers, like knife makers starting out, are not metal workers. This might be their first foray into metalworking because it's very approachable and it's small. It's a small investment in terms of the size. You don't see people like I'm a hobbyist railing builder. You know, you know, <laughs> you know. Knife making is one of those things. It's a very easy way. Most of these people have never worked with metal before in their lives. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me about you is you have this history of being uh, uh, in construction and an installer, which. I am so glad I'm out of, and you're the one person that I look to 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 think if I ever was an outdoor guy, I would kind of hope I'd be with a guy like Chris because you make it seem like it's fun. I try to make it fun. I mean, it's like I've been involved with construction for so long, and I've done so many different jobs in it. You know, like it, it has to be somewhat enjoyable right um and especially now like i feel i'm very lucky um i tell people all the time i'm the luckiest person that i know because like i get to do the jobs that i want to do now but that you know i spent a long time doing everything so that i could do what i want now and choose the clients that i have so like going through all you know starting when i was like 14 years old working in construction literally just digging holes because I worked for an excavating company next to like grown men. We used to pick up day laborers and I used to try to like work 
better than them. But, you know, a 14-year-old kid, I was like 100 right. pounds working against like grown guys from like El Salvador who could pick me up with the railroad ties. Like I had so many days where it's like you're working so, so hard. And then as you get better, right, the, the days get a little bit easier, but more technical. And now I feel so lucky that I can be like, all right, we're going to take on this job because it's fun and we have all the right tools and nothing's going to be a struggle. And at the end of the day, we're all going to be really proud of what we're doing. And it's like it's taking a long time to get there. That's one of the things that I think that a lot of people uh, miss out when they see your shop and when they see your, all the tools that you have. I made a joke at one point saying you should have changed your name to have everything shop. <laughs> and the, 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 the thing is, is like when you're an outside guy and installer, the right tool, it's different than if you're just doing a job. You're making a doing a job. It's one thing. But when you have your product, you have all your stuff, and you're about to install it, you re, you're, you're on the clock. Every minute counts, and you have to have the right tools to make the job go easy. So to have all the right equipment to make the outside job go fast is an investment in your time in the job as well. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that in the real world of construction and building and stuff like that and installations – the clock is is the 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 meter is running at a, such an exorbitant rate mm-hmm. that w- being one day over can destroy you. Yeah, there might not be a day. There might not be like a one day over. And it's funny too because like I think because I'm kind of young and you know like I have all this stuff. People ask. It's funny. Like I I hear from other people. No one has the balls to ask me for some reason, but people will ask friends of mine, like, how does he get all this stuff? Like, where does he get the money for all these tools? I'm like, I work my ass off to get yeah. this stuff. People ask Chris Cash all the time because Chris is always telling me, like, you know, I, I, somebody else was asking. But, you know, growing can just, up. Can I just stop one second? That is Chris's. Chris Cash is the greatest. I love Chris Cash, but he has a move. And he, this is the move. He does this with me and he does this with other people. People say you do or people say that you're like this. It's a fucking psychological move that he does where he's trying to not have himself be the one to say it, but he has he has these fictional people say it instead. So I, I'm on to Chris. Don't worry. When Chris says to you, people say to me, how does Chris Zepp have all these tools? It's him saying it. <laughs> well, Chris knows. I mean, I talk to Chris like a couple times a week. He knows uh-huh. exactly where it all comes from. Um, you know, a trust fund, right? Um, but no, that's not true. I, I um, Growing up, People, people have asked me whose shop I'm working in, but when I first started and I first started in the shop and I had all the tools like, oh, like, is this a family business? Do you work with a cabinet maker? No, my, my dad, um, when we were working when I was younger, like he didn't have the right tools. He had like the tools that he had and he made it work. Like dad was like an immigrant from Italy you know, like dad, his father was a Mason. He had a hard upbringing of working and he built an incredible life for himself and my family. And like, like we joke because now I have like five table saws. Right. And I have all this abundance. But growing up, I had a, a, a Delta Rockwell table saw that the motor, he kept it outside in the shed. The brushes in the motor were so shitty that it wouldn't start when you flip the switch. You would have to tip it on its side and hit the motor with a, a mallet. And then it would jump start it. The blade would start spinning. You would make all your cuts and then you would turn it off. Like that was what I came up using and it was so counterproductive. But, you know, this is also like before, 
you had the option to go out and buy a table saw for $300. That was awesome. You know, like tools were a lot more expensive. And I understand why my dad like used what we had because it's like, you know, we didn't have the budget to go out and buy better stuff. But then as I got older, it like I would go out and spend money on tools myself so that when me and him were working together, I could get the job done that much faster with him and show him there was like a better way, you know? And I think it really made me appreciate having the right tools. Like you could be a metal worker all day and never own a mag drill, but as soon as you get one, you're going to be like, holy shit, how did I not have a mag drill for the last like five years of my life? You know, like all the time wasted. This is the one thing that I say to people on Knife Talk. You, you, you're very, you become very cheap and you're very, I'm very personally very cheap. But then once you get the right thing, like a VFD for your grinder, mm-hmm. or you get the right heat treating kiln, you're like, why did I wait? Or two by 72 grinder, whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you say to myself, I say to myself, I wasted a lot of time. It's still hard to, it's still hard for people to realize that. It's still hard for people to say, yeah, 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 I know, but $1,500 is a lot of money, which mm-hmm. it, it is. So out of curiosity, why, why did you start working digging ditches or as a laborer at 14? Well, I, I wanted to work like as soon as I could possibly work, I wanted Mm. to get a job. So I was, I was younger than that. I was dating a girl whose dad was a mechanic and I used to ask him if I could come and work for him because like, I was always jealous of the kids whose parents own, like whose dad owned like a construction company. Cause like in the summers they could go and work, you know, like anybody whose dad was like a GC, right? Like as soon as you were old enough to carry a two by four, you'd like go and work for the summers. And I was always like, shit, I wish I like, you know, could go and work for someone. Cause my, my dad would work on our house, but he wasn't a construction guy. Like by trade, he worked in a in uh like cell phone data and like phone cards back when that was a thing right you know he worked for a company selling like airtime for phone card companies so when i was dating this girl um her dad wait wait so stop how old were you when you were dating i was i i guess i was 14 when i had that first job okay so i was you were saying earlier i was just like what is he dating the girl when he's no i was in seventh grade okay so seventh grade i was working for him um as as a mechanic in his shop or maybe seventh or eighth grade. I don't remember now, but I was working as a mechanic for him. He taught me how to do oil changes. He taught me how to change tires with the tire machine, um, and change like distributor caps and pack wheel bearings. And I like loved it. I'd go every day. I'd ride my bike to his shop cause I didn't even have a learner's permit and I would work for him. The following su- me and him had a huge falling out that at the very end of the summer that I worked for him. Um, cause he was kind of a dick and he threw away someone's oil cap for their car. Um, he was like the type of mechanic, and I don't think mechanics still do this, but like, Jeff, have you ever been to a mechanic that like, when you're done, when they're done doing the work, they show you the boxes of the of the parts that they replaced so that you knew they were brand new? No. I guess this is like kind of like a, maybe like an old school mechanic thing. Like no, if they put no. a new distributor cap, they'd show you the box for the new one and say, here, look, your old one's in this box. I put a new one on your car, you know? So he used to do that and he used to tell me like, don't throw any of the boxes away and don't throw any of the old parts away. I like to show the customers. One time he threw away a customer's oil cap and it, it was a whole big thing. He tore the, the shop apart trying to find it. He told me that I threw it out. I told him, you know, I'm not allowed to do that. Anyway, the next summer I worked for a different mechanic and on a Friday, this guy came in, he was getting his car fixed. I was doing his brakes and he saw me like a young kid working there. He's like, oh, you know, what are you doing here? 
And I said, oh, you know, I just wanted a job. I wanted to work. And he said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, it's Saturday. I have the day off. He said, well, I work for a construction company. I'm a, I'm like a project manager and we need laborers. And if you come and work for me, it's a 12 hour day. I'll pay you $10 an hour. And at the time I was getting like probably five fifty an hour working for the mechanic. So I was like, yeah, dude, I'll come in tomorrow. I'll work 12 hours. That'll be, I'll be like rich. So I did that, that Saturday. And by the end of the day, he said, tomorrow you should call the guy I was working for. His name was Anthony. He said, you should call Anthony and tell him that you're just going to work for me full time now. He's like, cause you're, you know, you're making way more money and you know, you're good and we want to keep you. So that whole summer like 15, I worked. 15, but you're like 15. That's like kind of a rough thing to say to a kid. Yeah, but I wanted it. Like I wanted okay. to be there. Okay. Like it, it, all I wanted to do was like work for this company versus being a mechanic. Cause I was never going to be a mechanic, you know, like I wanted to build shit. So he put me to work. I worked all summer. I worked a couple summers for, for that company. We did all sorts of stuff, retaining walls. We did a lot of like, we used to do brand new cesspool installations. So like you dig the big hole and put the uh, concrete rings in and you know, you just, when you're a little kid and you're working, like I said, up against full grown day laborers that are in their twenties and thirties, you work extra hard because you don't want to be left behind. You know, you don't want to be like embarrassed that like you couldn't keep up even though you're younger and smaller. So you just do it. And I did that for a long time. But that, but it seems you had a real love for hard work. Yeah, I did. And, um, you know, a lot of it was like obviously financially driven because like at the time I was making a bunch of money. Like my boss would give me seven or eight hundred dollars at the end of the week in cash. And I was like, holy shit. You know, like that was a lot of money at the time. Um, I mean, it was like life changing. Yeah, uh, I didn't go. What could I even buy with it? I couldn't even drive. So it's not like I could buy a car, you know, um, I couldn't really do anything except like dump it into like I would buy like BMX bike parts because at the time that was like all I was really doing when I wasn't working. So I just really liked the idea of being able to work hard and like have something to show for it at the end of the day. So that was always what I chased after, you know. Did you? Th- so when you went to college, I know that you had an art background. What made you think you wanted to get into art? So I always, my, my mom's an interior designer, very artistic. You know, my grandma was super, you know, super artistic. My, one of my uncles was an abstract expressionist painter. So there was always that kind of background in the family. And I always really enjoyed art, you know, like did oil painting when I was a kid and did like that sort of classical art. And then the high school I went to was really, um, had a really great art program, like an incredible art program. I really wanted to learn photography. So they had, you know, the whole dark room, the classical, like, you know, shoot, develop your own film, develop your own print in high school. So I did all that and I got super into that. And then I got really into stop motion animation when I was in like probably 11th grade. Um, So I got, I dove into that. I made a portfolio, you know, we did a port, we did a, um, what is it? A portfolio day when all the colleges like kind of come out and you go and go to all the different tables yeah. and show your portfolio. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you ever did one of those, but no, I never did one, but I know what you're talking about. I went to one at Pratt when I was, uh, you know, in probably high school and, um, you know, met, you know, met some, some different people from different colleges. I met, um, a teacher who, worked at the school museum of fine art in Boston. Him and I got along right away. He, he, you know, 
talked to me about my work, told me how he thought I could be better. And he nominated me for a merit scholarship upon like application. So it kind of like made me feel like, well, if, if this guy's telling me that I could get a merit scholarship, then they're going to accept me to this college. Um, so I applied there and that was it. You know, I went to probably one of the most liberal art schools in the country where they don't really make you do anything, which was actually really good for me. And I really enjoyed it. I think it was a, a critical part of my education. What kind of work were you doing? So I, when I got to school, um, I started out with the animation stuff. I took like, dove into animation um, and I took a little bit of sculpture. Um, and then I kind of realized that I liked building the stuff for the stop motion projects more than I liked actually animating them. Hmm. And then <clears throat> that school had a class where you, you got, in order to get access to the different shops you had to take a fundamentals class that would do the metal shop the wood shop and then the the uh plaster plaster and casting shop yeah so i took that class as soon as i possibly could get into it um because it was it was pretty hard to get that one you know because everybody wanted to to do that so i took that as soon as i could and then once i got into the metal shop and into the wood shop i was like oh this is all i want to do you know all i want to do is just like come up with ideas and make shit the fabrication end. Yeah, I loved it. I think that there's such a... It, one of the things that I think that certain people have is a, is a problem-solving background. And I, and, I, and I tend to... Ter- I try to tell people about blacksmithing, especially. But, you know, all this kind of making and sculpture, especially, that it's, it's just problem-solving. And there is a degree of personal satisfaction that you get when you have this idea and you try to figure out how you're going to do it and then you see it through. Absolutely. And that's like one of the things that I like always go back to. And that's why I take on the jobs that I do now in my life is because like, I love that. I love the problem solving aspect of it. That's why I like the restorations. You know, that's why I like doing the art fabricating that I do now because none of it's, it's not like I'm building off a blueprint, you know, like we just build stuff that no one's ever made before, you know, like giant rotating bed, you know, um, giant ramp that goes on a van, you know, like totally just like idea on a napkin and you make it and it works and some parts of it don't work. So you figure it out. Like that's, if I could do that every single day, I mean, that's, that's all I want. I, th- it's interesting that you say that because there's so many th- projects that you've done where you can tell that I almost wonder if the stop motion animation kind of helped you get comfortable with the idea of doing so much content creation because your YouTube channel your, 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 the shots that you do, the fat, the, the photography that you do, it's not your standard. It isn't like, you know, like I, I always think in my mind, cause I can't get behind doing videos for myself. It's just like, I feel like there has to be some sort of mathematical equation that I just don't know in <laughs> terms of how many shots you're supposed to take and what they're supposed to look like and stuff. You have such a, you have such a, um, an honest and sincere understanding of how to do a video that I would imagine that that comes back from, you know, back in the day when you're doing stop motion. Yeah. And the other thing too, is like, you know, the BMX and skateboarding thing, like we filmed a lot of that stuff. So I learned how to do the camera work. Like part one of the things I spent all that construction money on was like a, like a nice Sony camera that I spent like two grand on when I was in high school. Cause I wanted to have the camera to do the filming. You know, it was good for the BMX stuff. It was good for, the the stop motion stuff so like i had that background i started editing videos you know and i learned i just taught myself how to do it in like 2005 so like you know 
a lot of the YouTube guys that are coming out now, like a lot of the like woodworkers and metalworkers, like they're great at the fabricating, but like they don't, they can't make a YouTube channel because they're like, I don't know how to edit or I don't know how to use the camera. Like that's the first thing that I learned how to use. So it's, that part's easy. And I wish I could spend more time like kind of producing my videos a little bit more, but I try to cram so much of the work in there that they wind up being a little more like, all right, camera set up, you know, sped up motion. Here's what we're going to do. Um, and I think that, you know, eventually I'll be able to tie a little bit more of the cinematic aspect into the videos and it's just kind of, you know, once I have the time to get there, but yeah, the, the, the stop motion, you know, and the learning how to edit and learning how to cut, like Jimmy has talked about it before. Like I can edit a video without hearing it just by watching the waveforms of the video, knowing when like, this is going to be a loud spot. Here's where I'm going to swing the hammer. Here's where I'm going to make the cut. You know, you can just edit so fast once you have that kind of experience. So you're just looking at the, what are, what are the waveforms? Well, like the audio track, right? So like, you know, if I'm like welding and, you know, a lot of times I'm editing and I don't have my headphones in cause I'm like editing, I'll edit for 10 minutes and then I'll go back to work or whatever. So like the audio track, you know, you have like the peaks and the valleys of loud work and then quiet work. So when you film everything, you can pretty quickly figure out where's like a, a time where I stop and explain something or where's a time where there's not that much going on. Cause there's not a lot of noise in that moment, you know? So you, you learn how to edit you know, with the sound and, and, but it, it all kind of just comes with time and experience. You know, a lot of guys get frustrated and they get discouraged when they make their YouTube channel because they, they get so lost in the editing. Um, but you know, once you kind of get that rhythm, it, it's like anything, it's like teaching somebody how to MIG weld, you know, right. they're going to suck at first and you get better at it. So one thing you touched on that, I, I, when did you start becoming a professional BMXer? Is that what they call um, them? They don't. So that's an old man. I just was. Yeah, no, that's right I guess what it is. I mean, I rode bikes. I rode BMX all through high school. One of the you know things that when I went away to college in Boston, there was a huge BMX scene there. A lot of I met a bunch of people that were very much like me that, you know, were connected through like BMX shops and through companies. And it just, you know, at the time that was like the heyday and like the golden the golden days of like making YouTube like BMX edits was while I was in college where there was like the most money in the sport, the most interest, you could actually make money. You could like do well, there were contests and, and you, you know, so I wound up getting linked up with a company through a friend of mine. Um, you know, I had a signature colorway on a frame with stickers with my name on it. And I used to get to go to Texas and California and, you know, go on trips and, you know, film videos. And it was a lot of fun. You know, it was like, I, I, I put a lot of, uh, energy into that you know at that time i was probably doing the least amount of like outside work but i was also trying to get my degree at art school so there was a 50 50 kind of split between trying to go as hard as i can riding the bikes and also do well in school so that i could you know have something to show for my education when i got out but of course as a young person you also know that your time is very limited in regards to how long you can ride your bike so now's now's the time to kick in while you can a hundred percent. And it's, it's funny too, because I look back at a lot of the guys that I kind of came up with and some of them are still going. And I just wonder, like, I just know how hard it is for me to make a living. And I know how much money these guys, like the maximum amount of money that these guys could possibly be making. And I just think like, you know, I got out at a time where I had a pending deal with a new company and it was me and a couple friends were going to go start riding for this new company. And I told myself if this deal works, 
I'll keep going for another like two years and I'll see where it takes me. But if this deal falls apart, that's it. I'm, I'm done. And the deal fell apart. So I just said, all right, you know, I had a good run and I'm out. And one of those friends is still riding and still kind of like still a pro. And, you know, um, it's, it's tough, you know, like it, how he doesn't really have a career cause he never put any time into it. He dumped all his time into the bike thing and there, you know, there's no way to really make enough money to live doing that as great as it is. And as fun as it is, you, you can't, there's no return on like the wear and tear on your body, you know, like the, the amount of time it takes. It's, it's a really tough thing. It's not like skateboarding, you know, like skateboarding. A lot of these guys make a lot of money, like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year through their endorsements. Really? Like the top paid bike rider probably makes like, I mean, in the t- tip, tip, top, maybe one of five makes like $150,000 a year if he's lucky, hmm. you know? And he's like mid thirties at this point with like maybe one or two good years left. Is it more physically taxing than, than skateboarding? No, it's probably about the same. I mean, you know, you get the same, you get banged up just as much. It's just, it's not as mainstream, you know, like skateboarding is in every pack sun and zoomies and all that shit. There's just so much more money in it. Mm. Um, you know, someone told me recently, like the market cap on a, like skateboarding, like the, the market share is like in the billions of dollars when in BMX it's in like, it's like a hundred million dollars. So like the scale is, is incredible. It's like you the know? kickboxing of, of it's like the kickboxing of, of combat sports, which also this in the similar situation, it's harder for people kickboxers to make a pile of money than than like MMA guys. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you're, you're they're still shortening their life just like right. the MMA guys are. You know, it's like you know you're still getting like knocked out and and getting hurt, and you know every time you go for something real big, right, you risk your whole career. Right. You know, and like no one's giving you a contract. You're not like you're 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 an athlete, but you're not right. Like if you're a a baseball player and you like tear your hamstring you probably still have some sort of contract behind your to like retain some of that money that they promised you know because you got hurt you know making money for the team but if you're like a bike rider or a skateboarder and you like blow your acl out and you're out for four months you know did you get any bad have you had any bad injuries from from riding oh yeah i mean i i've had like 10 i've been knocked out 10 times i had like uh i tore my uh ac tendon in my left shoulder i tore both meniscus one in each knee i broke my heel when i was in college like you know broke my wrist i I got banged up you know like you get banged up doing it but you just keep going and then it's like it's funny too because then you know you start working in a shop right like you take the whole you take all the unknowns out of it like when you're going to like do a trick on like a bike or a skateboard right you're like launch yourself down a set of stairs. You don't know what the outcome is. You don't know if it's going to be good or bad. And then you work like into like using the engine crane and like lifting a machine. And I'm like, oh, well, I know the outcome of this is just going to work. Like my risk level now is so much lower than it was when I was younger that I feel like everything is gravy. Like nothing bad's going to happen now. Were you doing tricks like that where you're going downstairs and stuff? Yeah, there's there's like bike videos of me on on YouTube and stuff from back in the day, grinding handrails and and all those things. I wasn't like a big like jump guy, you know, but I did a lot of the street stuff. I uh, I I grinded a lot of steel handrails that I would probably go back and kick the shit out of myself for banging them <laughs> up like that, you know. But um, I, but how do you how, what how I I always see those things like I see the the videos where people are, you know, riding down. And I'm going to find your videos. I'm going to link them to the show notes. So I'm, we're going to get some, you're going to be able to watch <laughs> Chris Zepp almost kill himself. 
when you get to the point where you're just like, okay, I'm going to go down these stairs and I'm going to hop the bike up onto the, onto the handrail, your, your learning curve for disaster is very high. Yeah, it is. Um, but you know, like I'm a, like, and I'm the same way in the shop now. And it's funny cause I see a lot of similarities between the way that I was when I rode bikes and when I, you know, now the way that I work was like, I'm very much into like the conditioning of like, all right, getting yourself set up and learning how to do something and then being really good at it. So like the stuff I was good at, I think I was really good at, you know, and there was the shit that I wasn't good at. So I didn't do so like, you know, you work your way up and you, you earn your confidence and you learn how to grind the rail. That's a foot tall. Then you move up to the one that's two feet tall and you know, you, you figure out your balance and you do all those things. So, um, but I used to like rot, you know, push myself to the limit physically where if I was trying to do something technical that was really difficult I would just try it until I like physically couldn't even stand up anymore you know like just work yourself to the bone and I feel like I kind of do the same thing now in the shop where it's like if I got to get something done and it ends at two in the morning at three in the morning you just do it you know you Mm. just you don't stop because you're tired you stop when you're done do you it sounds to me like you were very organized in your methodology. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, just go down the stairs and hopefully hop up. And then ne- next thing you know, you're, you've are you done it or you haven't. And I can also imagine falling with a bicycle between your legs has to be one of the worst feelings ever. It's not so great. I mean, it, like I said, it's a little more controlled than like riding a skateboard. Because like, think about like, so a lot. there are a lot of people that can't even ride down the street on a skateboard. But like most people can get on a bicycle and like ride down a hill, you know. Right. So there's like a little bit less, but once you start taking like your hands and your feet off, right. And like doing tricks that involve like letting go of the bike, that's when you get the real exponential, uh, rise in, you know, risk. Uh, What's the worst accident? What's the worst accident you've had? Um, when I separated my shoulder, that was pretty bad, but I was up the whole time. Um, oh, there's been a couple ones. Like I've got knocked out cold once just like messing around in a parking lot with my friends and that one was that one was pretty bad were you scared and you're not scared you're just like you're more upset with yourself afterwards because you lose time you know when i when i uh separated my shoulder i was more like upset because like i was at kind of the peak you know like you get to this point where you go so long without getting hurt and you you get your like you're constantly getting better right you know it's like anything and then when you get hurt you get this like setback and the setback is so frustrating, you know, it's not like you're the only person getting hurt. My friends were, we were all around, you know, there's always someone like, you know, with a knee brace on or like in a cast at, at any given time. So you're always hearing about your friends that got hurt. So you're not, a, you're not, you're expecting it to happen. It's just a matter of when. Uh-huh. So when I separated my shoulder, you know, I was kind of in like a good spot, you know, and, and what was even worse was I separated my shoulder and I was in college making sculpture that was I was making big sculptures at that time so like I separate my shoulder I can't lift my arm above my waist and I go into class on Monday and my teacher is like what did you do I'm like oh I got in a bicycle accident she's like well that's stupid she's like how are you going to finish the semester now like you're not even going to be able to finish your work and I was like yeah you're right this was really stupid you know like it was it was it was a a balance between like being in school and doing what you want to do and you know I was, I never really thought about it right like that, you know, like it was just a result of what was going to happen. So, so what did you do? I just, you know, did my physical therapy. I changed the, some of the work I was doing. I asked for help when I needed it and I got through it. You know, when you get out of college, you've decided, okay, the deal didn't go through BMX is not for me. 
what's your next step? Because and in my mind, I'm thinking you you have this you you're very controlled in terms of your you're very very mature in terms of you realizing that this is either going to happen in the next two years or it isn't, and I'm completely you are completely prepared for it to be over. You know, what yeah. did you do when you when you made that decision? You're out of college. You made the decision you're not going to bike ride anymore. Well, it was like I got out of school and, you know, you go to art school and anybody that goes to art school knows like there's no job when you get right. out of art school. You know, like it's not like you're a computer programmer or a, or a, or a, a you're pre-law or something like there's nothing. And I talk about this. I've talked about this with people like I think you have I think people have a better chance of being like a professional athlete than they do of being a professional artist, because at least if you're like like the fastest runner or like the best free throw shooter, there's like numbers behind it right? right like the fastest guy on the track from the shittiest town in nowhere is still gonna go somewhere because someone's gonna see those numbers and they're gonna make it you know but you could be like who's the best artist it's not quantifiable so like it's impossible um and getting out of school and like you f you feel that right like oh i'm gonna keep making art for no one um it's it's a tough kind of feeling um and i know like you went to you went to art school Right. So, um, you know, or you have an art education background. So right out of school, my friend got a job uh, for an artist named Urs Fisher, who's a big um, conceptual sculptor out of Brooklyn. And he's made some really, really incredible work. He's very, very famous and he's done really well for himself. She got a job as one of his like fabricators in his shop. And then she got me a job working for him pretty shortly after that. Um, and it totally like changed my thoughts of like what I could do as a career. Cause when I got out of school, I had no idea what my like career was going to be. But once I realized that I could like keep making shit before another artist and get money for it and it would be interesting and fun. I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, pro, pro tip, a hot tip. Uh, <laughs> if you are an art major, if you're a sculptor, you have better chances of getting work outside of school than you do if you're a painter. Hundred percent. One of my teachers, this guy, uh, his name was Ken Ruby. He was very matter of fact. He was like a Vietnam vet who turned sculpt who turned sculptor after he got out of the army. He said, "You either have to figure out how to make enough money to pay somebody to make your art, or you have to figure out how to make all of your art with no money." Right. And my whole thought was, well, if I can be the guy that people are willing to pay to make their art, I'm cool with that. You know, because the challenges will be there, and I'll keep getting paid. You know, and so many kids at art school have no idea how to make the things in their head that if you can be like the guy that can do the welding or do the woodworking or like help advise, there's always going to be work for that. You know, that's I, why I like want to learn so many skills, you know, I tell you what, you're 100 percent right. I was lucky because my dad was a painter and he said to me, if you want to be an artist, you got to work for artists in the mm -hmm. summertime. And I, my sister got me a list of artists in New York in the summer. I just called them up, say, I'll sweep your floors. Yep. And I ended up working for a lot of different artists as an intern in the college. And when I got out of college, I ended up working for someone. But one of the best outside of college jobs I ever had was there was a sculptor who, who passed away a number of years ago. Her name was Mary Ann Unger. And she had this amazing apartment um, on, I think, I feel like it was on 3rd Street. And it was a loft. And she had an oxyacetylene torch. And she made these giant plaster sculptures, but they needed a steel structure underneath. She said, I pay you to come in three days a week to just build 
gas welded fabric, uh, gas welded infrastructures. Uh, yeah, so armatures, was, right? Armatures, and all. Yeah. I was I was from nine o'clock in the morning to five o'clock at night. I was with the torch, and I was with a gas saver and eighth inch rod up the wazoo, <laughs> and I was just making this, these structures. And then once we made the structures together, she'd leave, and then I would just cross hatch everything so she could cover it with uh, plaster. And it was one of the only, it was the first job where I felt like my skills as a welder were completely appreciated. It was the only job I think I ever had at that time where I felt like I'm needed to do something that somebody else can't do or won't do. Because I had yeah. to do it in her house. And I think that a lot of times, especially guys like you, is you end up getting this, or sculptors. I don't think, I don't know, but I don't fucking know what painters do outside of school. I have no idea. You know, I know that like guys like Jeff Koons has a, uh, Jeff Koons has a fucking building. Phil, he, he like drafts people from like graduate school to mm -hmm. be part of his whole universe because he's got like a sculpture building and he just gets these people from graduate school these art majors he looks at their work and then he he wants to know what they can do and then he hires them but that's amazing that you were able to kind of like figure that out because a lot of people can't do that well it's 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 an easy thing to figure out but it's not easy to get that job no um and i got extremely lucky it's it's actually like it's 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 just shows you like the way the world kind of works and just the way things work out so this this guy urs fisher um, and I encourage everyone to look up his work because he's really, really talented. And some of his work is really incredible. He was renting a building in Red Hook that my friend's dad rented when he first like started his company, who he was an importer from Taiwan. And he remained friends with the realtor. And when my friend got out of school, he was on the phone with the realtor and, you know, the realtor goes, you know, Hey, you know, how are your kids doing? Oh, you know, like Serena just got out of school. She's looking for a job, whatever. And he goes, Oh, what, you know, what did you go to school for? Oh, I went to art. Oh, there's an artist in the building that you used to rent. I wonder if he needs any help. So that was just like by pure coincidence. And at the artist, you know, cause any artist in Brooklyn could either be a nobody, you know, most of them are nobodies, right? right. The artist that she happened to like get connected with was this dude that had a Jeff Kuhn style, like, sculpture team you know like 10 20 people working 12 hour shifts seven days a week like enough money to fund anything you could ever need just get the work done and like that's something that like i think a, very few people get the opportunity to be in that environment and i'm i'm so lucky to have that but when that job ended it leaves a hole in your life like you know holy shit what do i do next you know like it's the top his work is very has definitely. I'm looking at it now. Urs Fisher. I'm gonna link him. I'm gonna link his website to uh, in the show notes. There is a Jeff Koons quality. He has mm -hmm. a, his color palette too. His color palette too is very. There's a stylized quality to it that's just very uh, luxurious. Is what a word I would use. It's it's very beautiful colors. Lots of reds and and blues and it's just very like it feels. It has a lot of feeling that uh, it's, I want to get into it more. That yeah, must have been a really, I, especially because, I mean, his work is so, like you were saying, you can work for an artist in Brooklyn, and it's like, I've, been, I've worked for some flea bags who just hired me <laughs> to, like, make well some stuff together. When you're working for a guy like Urs Fisher, who is clearly, this is like, this is the kind of artist you're hoping to be like when you go to art school. Yeah, I mean, you, you, would, you would kill anything to... Yeah, have half the ability to do the shit that he gets to do. Yeah, I, I would think that I would think that you've hit the jackpot. 
Yeah, and it, it felt like that when I was there. And like there was only so my friend wound up with a full time gig for him. We both kind of like she started first and then she brought she got me like in and I was there for a couple months. Then like, you know, I was basically just like a an independent contractor working for a few months. Then the projects changed, the work kind of dried up. She stayed on for like eight years. And then she built her business with another guy from that company where they're fabricating art for artists. That's all they do. Um, so I do a lot of work with them and that's where I've gotten the opportunity to do a lot more art fabricating, um, through my shop just because they have a lot of connections still in the art world. But you know, it's like you get exposed to, um, you know, how there is really no like, oh, we can't do that in that world. You know, like he doesn't, he comes up with an idea. Someone has to figure out how to do it. He's like, there is no accepting of like, oh, well that's not, you can't do it. You know, it's like, no, well, we'll just find someone who can cast this giant bronze sculpture. Like, they don't have to be here. They'll, we'll get it cast in Switzerland. We'll just put it in a shipping crate. You know, we'll put it in a sea can and ship it over, you know? Um, and it opens your eyes to like, you know what, shit, you can just figure out how to do anything. You know, I the would, right person will do it. I would say that that is one of the most, the best parts of an arrogant artist is they're going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. And Mm -hmm. one of the last jobs I was on when I was at the Center for Mental Arts is Jeff Koons contacted us because they wanted these eye hooks forged. And John Ledford, the lead man, was forging these eye hooks, and they were beautiful. And Jeff Koons' project manager came with his, you know, a couple extra flunkies, and and, and they wanted it to be forged, and John forged it, and it was these beautiful eye hooks, and they were so cool to watch him do it because they were... The, the, they were super, super tight. Like it was made out of like three quarter inch bar, but he wanted the, the inner hole to be like n- almost nothing. Like it, mm-hmm. it was such an um, it was such a hard forging. And I remember one of the guys pulls out a micrometer and John says, no, you're not pulling out a micrometer on me. Though. You can't ask me to forge this and then you're going to pull out a micrometer. Yeah. We're, not do- we're not doing that right here. And it was like this moment of like, no one tells Jeff Koons' people what to do. And, it was just, mm-hmm. and, he's, and then John was just like, and you're not going to find another person to do this around here. So this is it. And we, and it was funny, but it was like very much along the lines of he wanted it the way he wanted it. And he wasn't going to hear no for an answer. Now, of course, you know, they were eye hooks. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessary to put, uh, there were these forged eye hooks. But it, but I, that is one thing about artists that are, that I love, which is, you know, you tell them you can't do something. And they're just like, yo, yo if you aren't going to help me, I'm going to figure out a different way to do it. A hundred percent. And one of the projects that I got to work on with, with Urs and one of the, one of my favorite of his work is he does these things. He did these things where he had himself and one of his friends 3d scanned sitting at a table, like eating lunch. And then, um, he had those 3d scans turned into molds that would then get poured in wax as giant candles. And the installation would be, they would light these candles and they would just burn for like a month. And it would be him and his friend just like melting. So every day the sculpture would look different, right? Because it's a giant candle, like a human sized candle. And we got the, uh, it was a high density polyurethane, uh, like the, the buck. And we had to refine it before the mold could be made from the buck. And I remember I was working on the, on his ear and I was sanding it and, you know, you're like refining it and high density polyurethane is like not easy to sand. It's not like foam. It's like a hard plastic. And he comes over and he looks at the ear and he goes, doesn't look like an ear. And I'm looking at it thinking like, well, I mean, 
how much time do you want me to spend on this? You know, like it's one tiny piece of this huge sculpture of him wearing like a jacket with all these creases and folds. And like, he's like, it has to look like an ear. And I was like, okay, so, you know, I'll just work on it until it looks exactly like a a person's ear, you know? Um, And I I just, the thought of like, yeah, it's going to be a candle and then we're going to melt it, but it doesn't matter. It still has to look a hundred percent perfect even if we're just going to burn it and like throw it away. This is one of the interesting things about the way people see artists. And I think that there's a lot of misconceptions in regards to, well, they got, you know, this guy got Chris building all the ears, then he ain't the artist. You know, Chris is the artist. It's not, this is a huge misconception that Mm -hmm. I I actually don't like because I, I feel like when you're the artist is even if you're, if you, if you have the vision and you know how you want it done, the people are extensions. Your assistants are the extensions of your ideas. Mm-hmm. You, know, you look at 100%. glass artists like Dale Chihuly. He busted an eye out in a car accident. He can't blow glass. And he he is the designer of these beautiful art uh, art pieces. But people are just like, well, he ain't blowing glass. What, is, what does that have to do with it? Yep. I love the fact that you were involved so closely with this kind of, this kind of tough. It's a tough, it's tough working for artists, yeah, especially at it, the level of him. Yeah. And it's, and it, you know, even still in my like everyday kind of work now that I'm doing, like I, people have seen some of the work that I've made for artists on my Instagram. Like we did the giant, the end sign that was for an artist. We did the spinning bed with the spinning mirror. Um, and we've done a bunch of other work and I say we, cause it's those big projects. I always bring in my friends to like help. Um, and people will ask like, well, you guys are doing all the work, you know, like are you getting credit? It's like, no, I'm not getting credit. I'm the fabricator. You know, like it's just the way that it goes. And that's like, oh, that's not fair. It's like, well, you know, there's like, I didn't come up with this, you know, and I'm fine to be paid. Like one of the pieces um, that Urs did, which I feel like is like the total explanation of the artist versus the builder is he has a piece that I saw. It's in Greenwich. Um, and it's a piece of clay that he smushed in his hand. Then he had it 3D scanned, cast in bronze, 30 feet tall. So like a five-year-old could smush the clay, right? But like who thought to say like, all right, let's 3D scan it. Let's cast it in bronze and let's make it like the size of like a mountain. You know, like, yeah, he didn't do anything except smush the clay. It took him three seconds, but it's still his piece, you know? And I think there's a there's like a finite line between people that understand what makes it art and people that are like well that's bullshit because he didn't actually have to do anything you know i the, art is so difficult for people because and actually you know what your uh, your co-host derek from malden and, and i had a he was talking about art and, and he got, i i think i might have gotten i might have shot him a text right after i heard what he said without really like taking a breath and just relaxing he had a, he and i had a <laughs> conversation about it the problem is that most people aren't I don't know if educated is the right word, but they're not exposed to art at an early age. And because it's so subjective, it's really hard to be able to allow people to understand what an artist is doing and its importance, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, perfect example, I, I, I got invited to do a sculpture at uh, the Riverfront, you know, this is another Riverfront sculpture project in, in this town. And we, we put it in, the, we, put, we were installing it and there was a guy in the park who was having a barbecue. And as I was installing it, he came up to me and he started yelling at me. And I was there with the museum. He's like, well, I came here to see this river and I didn't come here to see whatever bullshit you're putting together. And this is some, and I was just like surprised because I was like, wasn't really expecting this. 
Yeah. And then the museum people were upset. And then, and then he says, I, I if he said, what you should do is as soon you know, when I, as soon as you leave, I'm going to just put it in the river and the museum. <laughs> and I said to him like, and I immediately, I was, well, I was nervous because it was just like, I'd never in my life had something like this happen where, and this guy turned out to be like an MTA guy. He was, he was like a union MTA. Actually, the guy turned out to be a, a volunteer firefighter in this town. And he just like started really intimidating me. And then the museum people started screaming at him and then it turned into a thing. And I started, I said to the museum people, let's go, let them have their barbecue. I'll come back later. Yeah. And then as he was leaving, he says, I'm just going to put it, I'm going to, I'm going to push it in the river. And I said to him. I'll help you unbolt the bolts and I'll help you move it in the river. I said, because that's the best thing I could they ever happened to me. I can get a newspaper. If you throw my <laughs> sculpture in the river, I'll take the I'll take the press over this sculpture being here. Trust okay. me, I don't have to do a thing. Perfect. Yep. And he laughed and then we left. And I actually I, I said to the museum people, everybody leave. We're just gonna let them have their barbecue. I'll come back and finish the installation. But it really upset me because it was really this it was this idea. And he he said to me, This isn't art. This mm -hmm. is shit. This is garbage. This is like wood and steel. This is garbage. And then he pointed to this 9-11 uh, monument that was not too far away. And he goes, that's art because that has meaning. That has something. This was, a, this was a very, very awkward and, you know, uncomfortable conversation based on feelings and, you know, anger. He didn't want to see, he wanted to have a barbecue with, with yeah. all these people. He didn't want to deal with me with the sawzall and some ratchets and you know with my you know my shorts and you know my artist bullshit you know but i think that i think that the biggest problem is is that because there's not a um a history of appreciation of what art is and you know the the, the celebration of people's creativity and stuff like that you end up getting these controversial situations yeah and you know it's like there's it's a hard thing i mean even for someone with the art background right like I always found you know I always found a hard time in art history classes because like that was part of my education at the school museum of fine art was like I had to go to Tufts University as well and get my bachelor's in fine art like through both schools so I had to do a lot of art education classes and like art history and like I always had a hard time with the like established meaning of a piece, right? Because hmm. when you go through art history, there is that like, well, this piece is supposed to symbolize this. And it's like, well, you know, symbolize whatever it wants. It can make you think of like a dog taking a shit if that's what it makes you think of, you know? Right. Um, and so one of the things that I think drew me to making like sculptural work is that I think it's a little more literal versus like these, the abstract expressionist kind of paintings. And obviously there's portrait stuff which is like if it's a you know a painting of a of a clock it's a painting of a clock and people will take for what take from it what they want but one of the things that I made when I was in college and there's like a whole body of work that I have from when I was in college that has never been seen probably by anyone that follows me now because it's just it's not something that I've ever really shared but I I made a bunch of stuff that would paint for me like I made like a bunch of work that would paint these abstracts completely random hmm. and the point was that like you didn't have to take my meaning and like deal with it you just figured out your own meaning and if you thought it was a piece of shit it was a piece of shit because I didn't actually make the work the, the machine made the work you know so the meaning there's no predetermined meaning behind the work it is just whatever you take from it as much or as little and that's that um because i was never really able to I, I guess put that much meaning behind the stuff that i was doing that i thought i could like properly justify and like put down 
someone else. You know, like if I made something that had feelings for me, I, I didn't feel like it could stand up and, and provide that same meaning to someone else. So let them f- take from it what they want. So why haven't you allowed people to see your work? It's not that I haven't allowed people to see my work. And it's so funny because I remember making that stuff. And there are some videos uh, of some of the sculptures that I made, some of the mechanical and like kinetic sculptures that I made online that aren't, aren't that hard to find. But I remember when I made that work thinking like, well, I can make all this stuff, but like I have no audience to show it. And like, mm. there's no, like, how do you make it so that people actually get to see it? And now fast forwarding, you know, 10 years um, you know, 10 years since I've been out of college, I graduated in 2011. I have a, a platform where I could show anything that I want. Um, so good or bad. So I think about like getting back into that kind of work. Um, because, you know, as self-serving as it is, it feels better to make something when you know, you have an audience that can see it, you know, I love the fact you've made these things that build that work and you're not showing it to people versus you're kind of doing that now with your youtube channel because these process these process videos where you're actually showing them being built is you're the machine you know exactly i just i love that i love the fact that you actually you almost it's as a prescient thing i mean you've seen this from the past like your whole you know your art background of making these machines that make the art but i don't want people to see them now is you're the machine that people are seeing on your youtube channel that's wild it it all comes around and it's like you know i i I feel like there's so much I, i put a lot of content out and it's like i kind of show what i think people want to see and I think that's a big part of like building a brand and building a channel and then then taking it and doing what you want with it. So like I know what I, I know I know the, the next 10 videos I can make for YouTube if they if they're all going to get views, I probably know what those 10 videos are, but they might not necessarily be videos that I want to make. You know, like I could take like the five rusty vices that are sitting on the floor and restore all of them and probably get a shitload of views just restoring rusty vices. But if I don't want to do that, I, I don't have to now because I feel like I've built my social media up to a point where like people are either going to watch it now or they're not. Um, and people are either going to like take the ride with you once you have a certain number of followers or they're just going to go, all right, well, I'll just wait for the next one. And it, now like there's so much focus on like the numbers and the views and all that other bullshit. And I know it because I've been there when I started my channel, right? You like hunt for those views at the beginning you know it's just like instagram you want people to see it um and uh, you know now that i I feel like i've gotten to where i am i almost feel like i've earned a spot where i can put out the social media work that i want versus the shit that i know is going to do like well on online but he's going back to what you were saying a while ago and i want to get into how you started the youtube channel when you were talking about when you graduate from college there's no best of, you don't have numbers. If you're going to be an athlete, you can show numbers to someone in regards to what you've done. But when you're an artist, you don't have this kind of ability to show any kind of numbers to validate the artist that you are. But with the YouTube channel and this and the social media, now you have those numbers. Now you have that engagement that you can, you have data, physical data of how many people watch your videos. You have the data of how many people are following you on Instagram. 
And it's almost exactly the opposite of what you thought you when you got out of college. It was like, now all of a sudden, now I have exactly what I didn't have before. Yeah, it's it's true. Right now, you're right. I and I you and I leverage that data against brands all the time. Of course, um, you know, like I know the reach. I know how many this and that, and how, you know how to sell to a brand now. But I don't think that that's truly like a judge of the quality of the work because there are plenty of people that you and I both know that are absolutely incredible that have zero social media reach and not for their own fault just because social media is a weird thing. You know, like um, you can put out incredible content. That's, I mean, look at Tyler. Tyler puts out some of the best content of anybody that I know and doesn't have the follower count of someone that puts out, you know, shittier content that just kind of catches the alg algorithm right. You know, and I, I've said it before, and I wish I could, like, buy stock in Tyler Bell because I swear to God, there is going to be a time where we all look back and we go, man, remember when Tyler had, like, remember when Tyler would put out a video and it would get a 1,000 views? Like, oh, wow, that was, like, that's so funny, you know, because he's going to be huge um, with, you know, a zillion and one views and subscribers and all the things that he could ever want. It's it's a tough thing, you know. It's it's similar to art though, because there are so many great artists that never get anywhere, um, and so many that are shitty and get really popular. But I think with YouTube, the playing field is at least a little more level. I'm interested that you say that, and I think that Tyler is an outlier in regards to the what the way I saw what your question was, because I do get uh, messages from knife makers, especially you know with knife talk and everything like that. It's like we get we talk to a lot of knife makers and there are a ton of people who say well you should be following this guy because he's so great but he has no hardly any followers and i think that there's a lot of times where the desire isn't there i i think mm -hmm. that in certain circumstances there are some people who just it's not for them i hear it all the time oh facebook i don't want to do facebook i don't want to do uh, instagram or something like that and when i have meetings with my business partner we both, we both like, you know, pr we, we thank the Lord, I Instagram for this business, because if it wasn't for Instagram, we have established that social media for us is strictly for business. I have no interest in sending a meme in regards to how you should live your life, nor should, <laughs> you know, that's, that to me is like baffles me to this day. I think that there are certain people who, who do not use it for what it's meant to be used for. And I think that that's the, their own decision in regards to Tyler he's a great guy he's a great kid I mean I, I think that I think that the most important thing and I and I don't really fuck with YouTube at all really because I'm just I feel like I'm too old anyway but the other thing is is I just it's not for me I think that there needs to be this concept that some people just they get into that we call it in Tony and I call it the slipstream the viral slipstream mm -hmm. of like Something goes viral and you slip into the slipstream and then you get carried away versus just having that ability to, you got to just, like, like this podcast, I've made it to, I am going to have one every week by hook or by crook and then you just, you just grind it out. And that's another thing. I mean, I, what I want to get back to really is, is how did you make the decision to kind of do the YouTube channel and kind of create you've you've created your own i don't like to say brand only just because it just sounds kind of out of my mouth it sounds <laughs> douchey but you've created a whole like this whole thing everything that you do i enjoy 
your stories, if I were to count, the, if I were to talk about the people that I, the top five people that whose Instagram stories I like the best are you and Honor are my two favorite Instagram stories people. I will never scroll, through, I'll never tap past your stories because you create these, you're constantly creating this tapestry of your life and what you're doing and you're showing people and you're you're kind of you're fleshing out more of the person that you are what kind of gave you the idea to just be like all right i'm going to embrace this all and and go full blast well full blast is how it goes and i appreciate that compliment um and you know sometimes i do like nine thousand stories and i wonder like god who can listen to me ramble i just think that like you know i when i started my shop it was because I wanted a place that I could expose people to like work and stuff, right? Like tools and processes. And it's something that I, people in my personal life, um, I've talked about having a place where I could like have like a makerspace from before a makerspace was a thing. I always like kind of wanted to have one cause I, you know, I wanted to be able to work with people and teach people and all that shit. And then like, you know, when, uh, you know, Jimmy DeResta and, and Bob from I Like to Make Stuff and a couple of the other like real like kind of maker YouTube guys, you know, I was inspired by what they were doing. And I thought, you know, like, well, I'm doing these projects and I have the film background and, you know, let me just see what I can show. And my first couple of videos are like super awkward and I have like no, like I have no like personality or energy in the videos. They're very like matter of fact and like, I'm like, hi, I'm Chris, and I'm going to make this thing. (laughs) And then, you know, with Instagram, when Instagram started doing the stories, I don't know what made me kind of start, but once I started, it was like, you know, just this is exactly what I'm doing, and this is exactly who I am. And I was talking to somebody about it the other day about how when you meet some of these maker people that we all know from social media, and they're nothing like their social media selves, you know, like they're shy and they're, you know, or they're, or they're weird or, you know, they sound different. Like my whole point with my social media, my YouTube and my Instagram was like, you're getting exactly who I am a hundred percent. I just don't swear as much on social media as I do in person. Cause if you've ever spent time with me, I talk like a sailor, right. but um, I try to keep the cursing to a minimum on my Instagram story because one time somebody messaged me that he was trying to watch my story with his kids around and I just kept going off and he was like, if you could just tone it back a little bit. I was Dude, like, all right, those fine. Those are such bullshit. Con- I, we got that on, <laughs> I, I, those, I got that on Knife Talk years ago and they said, when we were on the podcast, this guy wrote in and God bless him. He had his opinion. He said, I'm trying to, I love knife talk before you got Jeff and Mareko. I think I'm paraphrasing, but once Jeff came on, I couldn't listen to it in the car with my kids because mm-hmm. they, my chill, my children love knife talk. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? First of all, stop making your kid listen to this podcast. And number two is like, why are you telling me what I can say and can't say? <laughs> but I appreciate the fact that you actually, and actually now we don't curse as much as we used to. And I'm very aware of the fact that it's just, it's unnecessary to a certain point. But what made you, that that message really said something to you, huh? It did. And, you know, it's like, I get it. And and listen, my my upbringing, right, was like in construction sites and then riding right. BMX. Like I talked right. about this once on my Instagram about like mean comments. Is like when you are, when you come up in a blue collar like job or 
I mean, and and the New York and the whole BMX scene, I think, you know, nationally during the time that I was in it, like it was, it was, there was no room for like your feelings. Like if right. somebody was going to say something nasty about you, they were going to say it right at you and you just had to deal with it. And like my friends that I had growing up, we were all really, really hard on each other. Right. We all loved each other. And, you know, I, you know, I'm friends with these guys still and they're, you know, I consider a lot of them family. I would do anything for them and I know they would do anything for me, but we were not easy on each other. So like you develop a thick skin and you say what you want to say and you, you know, it's lawless. You, you, if you want to tell somebody to go fuck themselves, you, you tell them. And I was like, that's a part of me that like is a choice and it's not everybody is, is okay with it. And I didn't want to like isolate people because I was going to, you know, go and be like, oh, well, this bullshit that I'm working on today. It's like, there's another way for me to say right. it. And right. plus I work in a, in a very much a white collar day job where like, I don't have no, there is no like room for that. So it's not like I can't kind of turn it off. So I was like, you know what, if it, if it, if it broadens the amount of people that are interested in what I'm doing, I'll just like tone it down a little bit. You know, it's not so, not so bad. No, it's not so bad. I, 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 I totally agree by that. You know, I, yeah. you're a fascinating guy because it's just like, I, in regards to the install, you know, the fact that you recently just posted about this gate that you just, you just huh. finished. It's a, it's a, like a 20 foot long gate. Yeah. There's two. There's a, there's a, a 16 foot long gate that folds in the middle so it can like kind of tuck away. And then like another 15 foot one, long, 15 foot long one on the other side that I, uh, I just, uh, got involved with when I really shouldn't have. And, you know, now I'm, I'm married to it. You know, it's one of those jobs where I'll just, I, I, it'll never go away. I'll always be trying to fix it. This is the one thing that I hated more than ever in regards to installation. Cause when I was at the center for metal arts, I was the one, I was the kind of the partner of John Ledford. John Ledford was the lead man and I was his, like his number two guy. So he was in charge of doing the you know, measurements and the railings and stuff like that. And then on installation day, I was responsible for making sure that we had everything we needed on a job site. Mm. And that's it, a tough job. I tell you, we and we did not have separate tools for the work truck. So like our shop tools were also the install tools, which was a brutal because I had to make sure we had extra taps and extra bit drill bits. And I had to make, and it was, it got to the point where of all the things I did, that was the most stressful to me because if we didn't have something, it was my fault. And it, to me, those install jobs were, that was the most stressful part going out on these installations. And then all of a sudden you're just like, Oh, you didn't bring the, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. We had one time where we were doing this giant railing. We were on this job for months putting in these railings out in Connecticut and it was like an hour and a half from the shop. So one point the, I was going through and the, the boss at the time was like wanting me to hurry up, bring, you know, the day before, don't spend so much time loading up the truck. And he just started loading. I'll load the welder up. So we get to the job and the, we started welding and the install, and then we started welding and all of a sudden we're out of, we're out of wire. And oh. the lead guy says to me, he's like, did you pack, did you pack the welder? And I said, no, the, our boss packed the welder and, and he's, well, we're out of spool. And I said, I, he, the boss threw me off out of the truck and he said, he load up. We had to run around to try to find the flux core spool. And I was like, 
he was my elite guy was yelling at me and I was like oh my god this is my fault we didn't have the flux war and it got to the point where I was just like I can't do this anymore I can't go on these job sites because it's just like it's all comes down to me and it became very very stressful for me so when I see you in the middle of the night with the with the headlight on your on your hat <laughs> and you're working on this crazy gate that in my mind I'm like all I can say is I'm I'm standing up in my pajamas while you're out in the fucking field and I'm saluting you say god damn it he's got a smile on his face I can't I don't know how you do it yeah you know it's like I really and a lot of people say this but I swear by it and I say it to myself all the time like it things could always be worse no matter how bad in every situation. So when I'm like thinking about that job, I'm like, well, you know what? I have a place to go back with this thing and I have the opportunity to like build this and I'm getting paid for this and this and that. And I really, truly like at the worst moments in my life, burning my hand, I'm like, well, it could have been worse. You know, like it could have been, it could always have been worse. And it's, it's funny that you talk about being the guy loading the tools, right? So one of the things growing up as a carpenter. So after I was the mechanic and the labor and all that other bullshit, I became a trim carpenter. And I worked for a guy who had, like they built houses, they built great houses, and they never really needed anything special and they just got it done. But it wasn't efficient and it bothered the shit out of me. So I would always bring my own tools to the job and I would find ways to be more efficient. Whether he cared or not, I would just get the job done better. And that's part of the reason why I love having my own shop now where it's my responsibility to load the truck because like I'm going to figure out a way to have what I need. And if there's a problem, it's only my fault and I don't ever have to be like upset at anyone else. And it's funny you talk about that story with the welder because I was going to say I did a job. I drove all the way to Queens to do this job and I left the freaking cord for my TIG machine in my shop an hour back and I went to Home Depot and I made up a cord and I hot wired it into the machine because I didn't want to drive an hour back to the shop and an hour back to the job and you know you just but I had nobody to be mad at but myself and that's the way I like it you know like it's fine it's fine I I got it done and everything will be okay but you were able to but you you're also to use, you're able to use con, you can create it into your content which is well that's the other thing bonus. too it's like it's part of it and it's all learning like you have to constantly be willing to learn and and be like looking to learn all the time um and that's like really how i kind of think about all the shit that i get to do is like it's just one more like you know arrow in the quiver like you said about the tv show like it's just one more thing that i know about know how to do or whatever. One more job that I can say that I'll never do again. You know, I've forgotten a lot of, I've forgotten more jobs than most people have done, I swear. Um, and, you know, some of them I'll never do again. Some of them I'll just do better. I, one of the things that, you know, when we talk about makers and we talk about YouTube channels and our Instagram and stuff like that, there is such a, and I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, but there is a, is it's a vanity situation. You know, there, when you're a sculptor, when you're an artist, when you're a maker, when you're doing these things on Instagram, they are th this degree of vanity. One of the things, and now we're coming in on a year from my family, we're coming in on a year from when my wife got coronavirus bad. And I remember a year ago when 
you know, at this point in time, this is uh, the, the first week of April is when she got it. And you know, we, uh, it was, it was really a, one of the worst, one of the worst weeks of my life. Easy. No question. And I remember at this time we were, we were all trying to figure out, you know, life was different and we were trying to figure out ways in which we could be helpful in regards to and my my thing was I was trying to help the restaurants in the neighborhood and we were how do you can how can we use our Instagram and how can we use our social media for a non-vanity uh, situation one of the things that you did which I like it, it it is was so touching to me and I actually Craig Lockwood as well is you guys were using your 3d printers to print up PP at the time especially in New York there was a huge PPE shortage and the frontline workers were unable to use glasses. And I, I have glasses or respirators and stuff like that. And to the point where uh, in the, in kind of in the beginning of March, my wife said to me, we don't, the hospital that she works at does not have enough. We have to use the same M95 mask for a week. And there's not enough face shields. And I immediately went on Amazon. I bought a, I bought boxes of face shield, uh, 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 glass, safety glasses. And then we just, uh, she just came, went to work and gave everybody, you know, safety glasses and stuff like that. One of the things that you guys did was you were able to use your 3D printers to make face shields for the frontline workers. And it was such an incredible, it was such an incredible opportunity for makers and, you know, to be able to be helpful to these frontline workers. And that I just, I was just so blown away that you, you guys did that. Yeah. I think it was like an opportunity to like use some of the little bullshit that we all have, right? Like so right. many people have a 3D printer and my my fiance is a nurse in Manhattan. Um, so you and I have talked about, you know, the things that were going wrong with the PPE right. at that time. And, you know, I, there was, the, the, the way it was like taken by the media was like, you know, how much of this is true, right? Do these, you know, the governor saying, oh, these hospitals have all they need. And, you know, my fiance is coming home for work and going like, yeah, I tried to wear a face mask today. And my boss told me that I couldn't because they don't have enough for everyone. So they don't want anybody wearing them. And I'm like, well, that's bullshit. Like I have an extra, you know, uh, 3M respirator that I, that you're going to wear tomorrow. Like, they can't tell you that you can't wear it, you know, like, and we're all, everyone was afraid at that time. So it was like, well, what can we, what can we do? And I remember you and I having a lot of conversations around that time about like so many people not wanting to do anything. Right. And I, I was like really frustrating to me because it's like, you know what? Like, even if you have like five followers on Instagram and you can like, reach five people it's maybe like five more people it's five more people than you would reach sitting in your house doing nothing so like why not at least like share a resource if you don't have a 3d printer like try to connect someone that does have one with the people that needed help it just it's like we we all use social media to help ourselves i am not i would never lie and say that i don't it is you're 100 right it is about vanity you want to like get views and you want to do but there's nothing wrong with that no and that's the point of it but like if you have an opportunity to do something just a slightly bit better with it in a time where everyone's in crisis, I think it's irresponsible to not. Right. You know, like why not? It doesn't I felt the same way. Doesn't hurt, you know, and it costs nothing. That's it the was, other thing too. It was it was a great it was a great opportunity, especially how many how many face shields do you think you made? Um probably like two hundred. Yeah. You know, Craig told me this morning, I asked him because I, I knew I was gonna talk to you about this. Craig made 250 
and he donated them all to you know these hospitals in France. He don't even speak the language. He just showed up with a yeah. box of. It was such a great moment, and I don't remember the the the, the couple that what was the the couple that was had the. The, making the face shield part. Oh, so making- it was uh, the the makers workshop in um, they're in Massachusetts. They got the plastic. That was the hard thing to get. The clear plastic was like right. impossible to get, and they found so that that same clear plastic is used for um, pattern making for clothes, like for dress shops. They found a, a woman in their town who had like an industrial size roll of it sitting in like the storage room of her dress shop. And somehow got it. And they had enough to make like thousands of face shields. So they were actually going out and spending their own money to ship those plastics out to any of us that were willing to make the the 3D printed part. Because you couldn't you couldn't 3D print obviously the the clear part. Um so Michael and Brooke from the Makers Workshop, um Makers Workshop LLC on Instagram, they they did they spent a lot of their own money. Um, and just like, I, I hit them up. I said, Hey, I'm going to be printing the headbands. You know, they said, okay, how many, how many face shields do you think you need? And I said, just send me as many as you, you want to send me and I'll just 3d print until I run out of clear face shields, you know? Um, and so they really took initiative on that. And, and, you know, I talked a lot about them during it, but it's a good time to bring them up again, just to say like, they really, they really did a lot, um, kind of on, on their own just to get that going. I'm going to link the video you did on that because it was, you know, like I said, makers, we make things, you know, even when you're in, you know, the funny thing is, is when I I talk to my wife, nurse practitioner, I always say, I'm the guy making the bullshit and you're actually the person who's actually doing things. And it was really great to see guys like you and and them and, and Craig to, to really take your, the stuff that you have and be able to be help really helpful i mean the fact that i mean you know 10 years ago there were no people weren't using 3d printers you couldn't have helped to do shit mm-hmm. but the fact that you know it was so readily available and for all these makers to kind of get together and like be helpful i mean you, it's not like you're carving it with a dremel you just you're, you got the system on and you're making it happen exactly i mean it literally just ran in my house like like perpetually like i would just it would it would print three headbands at a time and then i would pull them off and i would just start click the file again it would just do three more and then um you know me and my fiance would spend the time to like you know tie up the elastic and put the shields on it and then put them in a box and then i would put them on facebook and just say like hey does anybody need these you know um and people would be like when i would give them to people i used to try to not like actually see the people because you know it it Every single person I gave them to tried to give me money for them. Right. And every single person I was like, there's no way I'm taking your money. Just like put it back into wherever you're going. Right. So it got to the point where I was like, you know what? I left them on my front porch in a cardboard box. Like we all shouldn't even be near each other anyway. This is like peak COVID where you didn't even want to like go outside, you know, just come and take the stuff. And everybody was like so happy to get them. And it's like, there's obviously a lot more people that could have been 3d printing shit. Um, that you know didn't because they were doing something else or whatever and i don't hold anything against them but it's like it was such an easy thing to do you know it's like easier than like putting a a soup can in the box like around the holidays you know 
I felt like it was a real New York thing too. Like I, I, I actually, I've gotten in conversations with people about how New Yorkers actually are. And there's this big misconception in regards to how helpful New Yorkers are. And, and in my mind, I really, when you guys were, when you were doing that, it was really like, I felt like, fuck, I wish I had a 3D printer because I want to make some too. It was, it was a highlight moment during this pandemic for our community which yeah. I think is just like, it was just amazing. So what's next for you, Chris? What's next for you? Oh, what's next, man? I don't know. I'm, I got, I got, uh, like I said before, um, I feel like I'm like the luckiest person in the world. Um, so I am very lucky in that th this year I have pretty much decided to not do any client work. Um, and just focus on like a couple of clients that I have that have really interesting projects that I can do and just work on, you know, making cool shit in my shop. That's what I decided I was going to do for uh, 2021. I have a friend who just bought a restaurant. I'm going to be doing a lot of the uh, stuff for her restaurant, a lot of cool projects there. And um, I'm just going to like go down my list of stuff I want to build for myself and do it. You know, I'm so. you're, you're outstanding. You are. I, I've been waiting to have you on for a long time because you're just I, you, like I said, it's hard not to root for Chris. Chris Zeppieri, Make Everything Shop, it is hard not to root for you. So guys, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go follow him. I know you already follow him. I got so many messages already. Excited to see to hear you not talking with with Paul and Derek. You wanted to get a different, <laughs> wanted to get a different, a different view. We didn't so, talk about food at all. We didn't talk about your Fakakta stock picks either. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> one of the things if you want to listen to if you want to listen to the handmade podcast on the Makery channel, which I think you should, just don't follow their stock tips. I I, I gotta at some next episode <laughs> I have you on, I we might have to have an intervention with you and Paul because the the stock pick, you're gonna make you're gonna put some of your people in the in the gutter. You're gonna put some of the people in the gutter with all your stock picks. But regardless, <laughs> go follow Chris on Make Everything Shop. Go subscribe to his YouTube channel. You will not be disappointed and i'm going to link some of the videos on his on the show notes of this chris is a great dude the handmade podcast is great with paul pinto uh, forge and fire champion and and derek from alden who at some point i need to get to, i need to talk to him i he's hiding something with that beard the beard he's <laughs> i'm i'm convinced that there is something deep that he's hiding and i need to know what it is so go follow chris and go follow this podcast and also uh on instagram full blast podcast on instagram and um if you're if you're if you're so kind as you go on wherever you can leave a, a review leave a review five stars would be nice a little thing little this little that helps me out and go sponsor uh, go uh go buy some axe wax full blast 10 for 10 percent off and once again chris zeppieri thank you my man Thank you very much, Jeff. I have I have something I wanted to say earlier that I Go want ahead. to leave your listeners with um, about about machinery. This quote that I read from Henry Ford, and I'll leave you with it: If you need a machine and don't buy it, then you will ultimately find that you have paid for it and don't have it. I'm with you. I I couldn't agree more. Good old Henry Ford. That's my man. All right. There you Thanks, are. All Jeff. right, guys. We'll see you next week. Oh, guess who's coming back next week? The Cowboy. Ben Snoor is coming back. We're going to hear. We're going to get him back in the seat. And uh, we'll see you later. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.